0: Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. Thanks for coming up. It's good to see you guys. Do you know what an idol is? When you think of an idol, what do you think of in your head? What do you see in your head when you think of an idol? Yeah, like a a statue of some sort, maybe made out of wood or stone or metal. When I was your age, when I was a kid, that's what I thought idols were. I thought an idol was a, a little statue that... People a long, long time ago used to worship as a god. And then I learned that there's some people in the world, maybe on the other side of the world, who still worship statues, idols. But it's good for us to know that idols are not just statues. Idols are any god who's not the true god. And there's a really helpful way to think about this. A god is any source of goodness or comfort who is not the Lord. So anything, anyone that gives you good stuff or who comforts you but is not the Lord is a God for you. Today's Mother's Day, right? How many of you think your mom is a God? Raise your hand if you think your mom is a God. (laughs) she can be. Did you know that? Does your mom give you good stuff? Everybody raise your hand quick, quick. (laughs) Does your mom comfort you when you're sad? Yeah, of course, right? Moms give us good stuff. They comfort us when we're sad. If we forget that God gave us our mom's If we forget that God gives us mothers to give us good stuff and to comfort us, then mom becomes a god for us, an idol. Did you know that? When we know that God blesses us through the people we love, like moms and dads, when we know that God blesses us through all sorts of good things in this world, then those good things, then those people are not gods because we know that it is God who is blessing us through those people. But when we forget, when we forget that God is the one who's blessing us through our mom, then mom becomes a god for us. And it's no different than if we were bowing down to a hunk of wood or a piece of stone. The very first commandment in the Bible, the very first commandment is you shall have no other gods. And if we're honest, we've all had other gods a whole lot, even if we've never bowed down to a piece of wood or a piece of stone. We we forget that God is the one who blesses us, even through our moms and dads. In every way in our life, God is the one who is blessing us. That's sin. We need a Savior to forgive us those sins, and in Jesus we have that Savior. He has forgiven us for all the times that we have had false gods, for all the times that we have worshipped idols instead of him. Jesus is our Savior, which means we are forgiven all those sins of idolatry. And now, risen from the dead, Jesus gives us new purpose. He helps us to live for him, to worship him and him alone. Let's pray and ask Jesus to help us do that. Dear Jesus, we often lose our perspective. We forget what's really true. We forget that you are the one who blesses us through everyone and everything that we have in this life. We thank you for forgiving us all those sins of worshiping false gods. We ask that you would help us, risen from the dead, help us to worship you and to worship you alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You have a portion of Acts chapter 17 printed in your worship folder. We're going to actually look at a little more than what's printed in your worship folder today. So if you want to pull out your phones or a Bible in your pew to to follow along, you're obviously welcome and encouraged to to do that. We're going to start today um, at verse 16. This is the account of the Apostle Paul traveling to Athens in Greece and finding a city full of idols. Paul's waiting for two friends, Silas and Timothy. We hear, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. We'll pause there for just a moment. Athens, at the time of Paul, a little under 2,000 years ago, was a pretty fascinating place. He walks into this big, beautiful city, and he's distressed to see the city's just full of idols, and you don't have to be an expert in Greek mythology to know what he's talking about, right? Over here, you've got a, a temple to Zeus with an altar for him, and over here, you've got a temple for Aphrodite with an altar for her, and, and on and on it goes. There's dozens of these Greek gods. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you might know how they came up with this concept. They looked at creation, they looked at nature, and they used their head, what makes sense, and they used their heart, what, what felt right to them. You look at something like a thunderstorm. And you see the power of lightning and you feel very small and insignificant compared to that great power of a storm. You want shelter when it's rolling through. Well, you can understand how someone would look at that lightning bolt and think, I I bet that's a God throwing down his lightning bolts. Makes sense. You fall in love for the first time and you feel these things you've never felt before in your heart. And you're not quite sure what to do with it, but there's this attraction to this other person that just brings you together in a way that you've never experienced. You can understand how someone might think this must be a divine thing. There's this goddess, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, who, who brings people together with this powerful, mystical force. You can understand how people would look at the world and they would use their head and they would use their heart and they would try to figure out what's true. They wanted to know what was really going on around them. They, they wanted to know why the thunderstorms were the way they were, and why love is the way it is, and why the sea is as powerful as it is. They weren't all that different from you and me. They were truth seekers. They wanted to know what was true. Don't you? Don't you want to know what's true? If you get an inkling in your heart or in your mind that you've been fed a bowl full of lies, isn't that frustrating to you? I mean, you want to know what's actually true, don't you? Of course you do. And so you use your head to try to figure out what makes the most sense. And you use your heart to try to figure out what feels right. But you have to understand that just like the Athenians, when you use your head and when you use your heart to try to figure out what's true, you are doing so within a certain framework. You may not be aware what that framework is. But I'm going to propose to you that within the context of this text today, there's really two frameworks in which people tend to operate. The first one spans from conception to the grave. It assumes that since all we can see is life from conception to the grave, that that's the framework in which we're going to make determinations. It assumes death is the end. It assumes you got this one life to live with this limited period of time, and you don't know how much you have. Therefore, what makes sense and what feels right will take all that into account. And the span of life will dominate what makes sense and what feels right. The other framework, the one that Paul brings to the Athenians, is that of the resurrection he preaches to them this strange concept. I know someone who was dead and is now alive again. And the fact that he's alive again is an entirely different framework in which you use this and this. They had built this pantheon of false gods based on what made sense within a framework of life and death, But they had no clue about the resurrection. They were so uncertain in their search for truth that they had set up an altar to an unknown God. Why? Because deep down, they had this little thing that the one true God had worked into their heart called a conscience. And they didn't know what it meant, but they knew something was wrong. There was this tension, this dissonance if you're a musical person. There's this dissonance between them and God. And they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know quite what. And it was still there, even after they sacrificed to all these gods, and they thought, you know what? We better cover our bases, and just in case we missed one, let's sacrifice to he, she, it, them, just in case we missed one. They were grasping at straws, looking for some way to make sense of the world, but they had one missing piece. They didn't know about the true God and they didn't know about the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul comes to them and he says, I'm going to tell you what you're missing. And that's where he begins his sermon. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's interesting to note that at the very beginning of this section, we hear Paul is greatly distressed when he sees the cities full of idols. I know that's true for a lot of you in here. I hear, I hear you talk about it often. You look at the world around you and you see a world full of idols and it causes you great distress. You see a whole lot of people worshipping a whole lot of gods who aren't the true one. And you just sigh that deep sigh. What do you do? You just shout truth in their face? Do you just yell at him the word of God? Try to figure out ways to, to shout him into submission? Is that what Paul does here? No. He learns the culture. He quotes their own poets. He gently, patiently talks to them and says, I, I understand why you think the way you think. It's no surprise that you... Worship the gods you worship, but it's time you learned about the true God who gives life and breath to every living creature and who has seen to it that death will not be the end. He lovingly presents the truth by giving them a new framework, and it all has to do with Jesus, who is not dead, but alive. Paul is absolutely convinced that Jesus is alive. That's the starting point. Are you? Are you absolutely convinced that Jesus is alive? I'm not so sure you all are. You live in a culture that uses head and heart within the framework that death is the end. And what becomes important, what's true for the people in our culture, based on using head and heart within the framework that life and death is all there is, leads to very certain conclusions of which you are very familiar with. Just think of the last, I don't know, five, six decades of history in our nation. From the sexual revolution, to feminism, to the rise of of abortion. What do these things all have in common? They all assume one thing, death is the end. And therefore, since male and female are so different, and since sex results in very different things for men and women, well, we ought to seek equality for men and women. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that even feel right? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, if death is the end, it makes a whole lot of sense, don't you think? When was the last time you acknowledged just how logical this way of thinking is? When was the last time you acknowledged this actually feels right within a certain framework? Have you acknowledged that? Because to the people around you, it makes a whole lot of sense. And it just feels right. Why should men and women have it different? Why should the span of a woman's life be burdened by nine months of childbearing when it doesn't happen to the man. Doesn't that make sense? If death is the end and you only have one life to live, it even feels right. The question is, what is the framework within which we're functioning? Paul actually believed there was a resurrection from the dead. I ask you again, do you? Because if you did, that's the starting point. When you're talking to people in your own home about what the Bible says, start with the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive. Death is not the end. The conclusions that this reaches And the deductions of the heart look a lot different in an eternal context. A lot different. Because this life is not all there is. The decisions that you make when you decide just how valuable a child is to you, as you consider the use of birth control, as you or someone you love considers abortion. The value of a human life looks very different in an eternal context when you realize that this child is not just a hunk of flesh and bones, but has a soul that will live forever, a soul that's been bought by the precious blood of God's own Son, who went to a cross and poured out his blood for the forgiveness of all sin, and was raised to life to assure us that sin really has been paid for and death really is not the end. How you consider birth control in that context matters. And far too often in our circles, birth control is selfishly used. Far too often in our circles, we treat the value of a child The value of a woman, a mother, as though death was the end. As though being happy from cradle to grave is the only thing that matters. Death is not the end. Jesus lives. And for all of your worship at the altars of the God's of our world there is forgiveness this is why God's son matters the God who gives life and breath and everything else sent his son to take on flesh to be born of a woman to have a mother to live and to breathe to perfectly obey to never worship at the altar of a false God Jesus gave his life so that you and I, idolaters, could be forgiven. He gave his life so that we would be forgiven for all of our flawed reasoning and all of our flawed feeling. For every bad decision we've made within a context that often, more than we'd like to admit, ignores the reality of the resurrection, you are forgiven. You are at peace with your God. Jesus lives. He is alive right now and will be forever and ever and he will use his power over death to raise you and all the dead. Jesus lives and he calls you to live for him and for him alone. Amen.